couple of quick uh, housekeeping items. One, um, some of you have asked about, hey, when do we get next information about Faithful Next Steps, the capital campaign that we're involved in. And uh, we are closing in on being able to bring, schedule some information meetings and, and bring some stuff to a Sunday morning. Um, everything just takes longer than you think. It's amazing how, I don't know if any of you are doing any of this kind of stuff out there where you're getting contractors or doing building or any of that kind of stuff. Like it's, everything is extended nowadays. Everything takes a little bit longer. So we'll hopefully have stuff to you soon and uh, bless you. And, uh, and then also if you're, um, if you're someone who listens to the Reconstructed Faith podcast because of several things happening at about the same time, we've not had a new podcast in about a month. Those will be coming back soon. Um, if you've not been a part or not been listening to the Reconstructed Faith podcast, um, I think uh, they're pretty good, and that's just not because, not just because I'm on them, but I think they're actually really uh, kind of fun, and I think you would enjoy listening to them, being challenged by them, and we bring a lot of the things that is hap- are happening in our culture right now today, the battles that are happening that are leading to people to, quote, deconstruct their faith um, without reconstructing it. Um, we really engage with those, and uh, we would love to hear your p- thoughts and opinions on it as well. Um, okay, so jumping into this, I've got to tell you, over the last couple of weeks studying this chapter, and, uh, and it's often the case, I mean, I, I love David and the story of David, and at some point had considered even writing, trying to write a historical fiction about the mighty men, and so I really dove into the Samuels and the Chronicles, and I've, I've read these stories before and read these accounts before, but uh, diving in at the depth to prepare a sermon has really been extraordinary and special for me. And, and I've met some people in these that I knew who they were, but I had never really connected with them before. And I've got to tell you, over the last couple of weeks, I have become so enamored with Abigail, um, who is the kind of the hero of our story today, the hero of what we're going to be looking at. And I actually think maybe it's magnified because of my training and experience as a therapist. Um, one of the, I, I've said before, and I know I'm hard on men when it comes to counseling and that kind of stuff. I can be, I'm going to carry a little extra, put a little extra burden there. But I, I actually have come to the opinion over the years that the vast majority of the time when someone has a therapeutic issue, it's some man's fault. Some, somewhere out there is a man who started this problem. There's a man who has an ego issue or an anger issue or, or something like that. So many of the women in our lives, men, our wives, our daughters, our coworkers, they, they live in this constant state of measuring out their words and actions carefully because of our fragile egos, our arrogance, and our anger. Um, however, badly, just this is an important thing to know, um, and men, most, of, most of us as men don't know this, I've learned it over the years, however <clears throat> badly a man has ever lost his temper, the women and the children in his life, especially his wife, always have to prepare for him to lose it to that degree again every time it looks like he's going to lose it. So however bad it's ever been, she prepares herself. Every time it looks like something could be going wrong again, she begins to prepare her heart for that level of anger again. It can be days later, years later, decades later sometimes. Gavin DeBecker, the, 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 um, one of the experts on um, safety, security, and fear, I wrote a book called The Gift of Fear. And in it, he talks about how women's number one fear is being assaulted by a man. And that most women make dozens of decisions a day to avoid that. If, if I ask how many of the women in the room find themselves doing things like checking in the backseat of their car before they get into it, like is that a thing that women 
do. How many of you actually check under the car? Like you look under the car because you heard about the guy who had the razor blade who would cut women as they... I doubt if that actually was a real thing. I doubt if his career was... His criminal career lasted very long. Under a car is not a good place to start uh, your criminal career. Um, seems like there'd be a lot of like thump thump and then his career would be over. But it's a... Uh, but here, so how about this one, ladies? If you said, if you were, if you needed peanut butter when you were going grocery shopping and there was a creepy looking guy on the peanut butter aisle, how many of you would skip the peanut butter aisle and come back to it later? Show of hands. Yeah, all of you. Um, guys, don't do that. Um, I've, said, I've said before, I think there would have to be like an active knife fight going on in the peanut butter aisle before I would, <laughs> even then it'd be like, guys, peanut butter. Um, <laughs> And, and now Gavin DeBecker does talk about how men's number one fear, which is intriguing when with what we're looking at, is feeling rejected by a woman, which is why I wouldn't care if there was a knife fight going on, but I would probably suck my gut in if there was a woman on the peanut butter aisle, right? <laughs> That's the, the natural inclination for us as men is that to feel that same level of similar levels of fear. Well, that, those, that combination is a weird one um, when it comes together. Um, I know women can have similar anger and abuse issues. Women can be abusers and have uh, severe anger problems. I've certainly seen it plenty of times in therapy. However, there's, there's, a, there's a, almost a constant experience of this for women when it comes to from men. Is that their fathers or their husbands or someone in their life, have experienced, they've experienced this type of anger, rage. Um, I've seen it plenty of times. Um, it makes me that much more grateful that I have such a strong and gentle wife, um, that I don't experience that at home. In studying Abigail, here's, what, here's what's going to stand out, though, is, is that she's about to face, and I'm going to unpack for you, I think what will be helpful for you, she's about to face an unbelievably difficult situation, shockingly difficult situation, and she's going to handle it in such a way, and this is a woman who has probably experienced, at least for her entire marriage, an abusive relationship. I don't know that. It does not tell us that, that Nabal was abusive. It just says he was a fool, that he couldn't be confronted with things that he needed to be confronted with, and he had a, he had a serious problem when it came to listening to wisdom. At least probably emotionally abusive, I don't know. But I pick up 1 Samuel 25, but I want to lay that groundwork because we're going to see these moments, and I want you to have in mind a woman who probably is used to being afraid. Verse 14 so if you remember, as we pick up here, remember David had come, David's men, as we about to talk about, had protected Nabal's men. We'll talk about that more in a second, all, all season. Um, and it's a feast day, and so David shows, sends some men potentially to go join Nabal in a feast. And Nabal is very intentionally insulting, very intentionally and deeply insulting. David, the David's men come back and tell David that, and David immediately loses his temper. Again, we're going to unpack that. Um, some more, and goes with the intention of killing every man in Nabal's household. Um, we'll, we'll talk about why that's out of line. That's where we are. But one of the young men, verse 14, meaning one of the shepherds who David's men had protected all year, one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us by night and by day, and all the while we were with them keeping the sheep. So if you, like me, the first time you scanned through this felt like this was a little bit of maybe just a protection racket, that like David had hung out with his men, had hung out with all of, all of Nabal's stuff and hadn't stolen any of it, and I think we deserve some compensation for not stealing your stuff. 
I'm mean, sure it would be a huge shame if something happened to your sheep, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that be a huge shame? I, that's not what's going on here. David and his men served as a defense. We talked about last week that where Nabal is situated is not a safe place. He's right on the boundary of Egypt. He's right on the boundary of the deserts in the south part of Israel. He's near Philistia. This is not a good place for to be doing this, and yet he is doing this here. Again, he's a fool. David's men protect his stuff and his men all year. Think how much these shepherds must, these young shepherd boys must have appreciated being alive at the end of the year. Um, they knew why they were alive. It was because of the wall of protection that David had put around them with his men. Verse 17, now therefore know this, this is still a shepherd boy speaking, know this and consider what you should do. For harm is determined against our master and against all his house, and he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. This is shocking that he would speak to the wife of his master this way. This certainly implies this is not the first time this has happened. This kind of stuff, the servants coming to a wife to say, your husband, the worthless idiot that he is, um, can't be trusted. From, I can't even warn him that he's about to die. He won't even listen to that. So he goes instead to Abigail, to Nabal's wife. I think probably over the years, Nabal's servants and friends have learned to go to Abigail because he's worthless and she's extraordinary. This young man, by the way, keep in mind, he has seen David's men in action. He's seen David's men form a wall. He is pretty concerned at the thought of those men coming for him. Coming to kill all the men in Nabal's family and in his, in his home, and that probably includes the very shepherds they've been protecting all year. The shepherd boy knows what David and his men can do. He may have even seen David and his men strap on swords before. This is a terrifying moment for him. Now, in order to understand, I want you to get a, a correct picture of why, part of why David's so angry. So I want to make sure that you get, we get inside of his head, and it kind of starts here. Hospitality in the Middle East is a non-negotiable. It was, it was a non-negotiable then. It's still a non-negotiable. If you've ever been over there, um, and you go and you get a meal with them or something like that, one of the first things they're going to do is they're going to say, okay, um, first thing we're going to serve is salad. Now, we're, we're in the South, and this is a very hospitable culture here as well. We have family who lives up north, and they would talk about how they drove from up north towards Texas, that they could tell how far they had left the north and were almost to the south by how people treated them at gas stations and, and just random interactions with people and grocery stores and whatever. That's like he said, it is a marked difference. Here, people are offering you things. They're saying hello and howdy, and they're greeting you, and they're offering to help you if you need help and, and all that kind of stuff. He says, it's really shocking to see that. So we can appreciate the idea of a hospitable um, culture. When they say, okay, we're going to serve salad now, we go, okay, we get that. Starting with salad, that's not bad, right? We all know hors d'oeuvres are the best part of a lot of meals. And so we go like, hey, we're going we're to start with salad. But when they say salad, they mean this. So you're going to have a dozen different types of salad show up on the, ta on the table. Not kidding. It is a, you sit down, you go, we're going to serve salad now, and a dozen different salads will show up on the table, and you're supposed to take some of the ones you like, and we go, we love buffets. Every, every hospitable meal for them is a buffet. They serve so much food, it's ridiculous, and you, and you I've, I've been in private homes there, they do this, you go to the restaurant, they do this. You pay them for food, and yet they are, the, food, the money is important, but their, their hospitality is on the line. They are nervously, the owner of the restaurant is kind of nervously pacing, checking all the tables, making sure you don't run out of things. In fact, it's one of the things you have to watch out for over there here, and um, we had a guide teach us this here, it's a compliment to eat all of something or drink all of something, right? Like, I liked it so much I ate all of it. 
There, it's an indication they didn't serve you enough, so they're going to give you more. So this is an interesting, co- co- uh, I don't know what, the, a collision of cultures, I guess, that we, they would have to tell us, like, don't finish your tea. If you do, they will pour you another glass of tea. And so here we are as Southerners, we're like trying to force down a little more to let them know how proud, and they're like, and filled again. So um, just be, a, if you ever go. So <clears throat> it's certainly, that being said, of course, the biblical teaching, Jesus later comes along and says, listen, when somebody insults you, let them insult you. Who cares? When they slap you on one cheek, give them the other one, right? At the time of David, the rule was an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This is still a radical overreaction. Nabal has been inhospitable and insulting. So we're going to go kill every male in his household. Mm, That's not an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, right? That is an extremely, that's blood guilt. This would be mass murder for David to do what he's planning on doing. It is not justifiable. We'll talk about that more. But getting, continuing to get inside of David's head, not only is the hospitality rejected, not only is there ex- this extreme insult, but he's now been several probably years of Saul, a man who he has been totally loyal to, has not only betrayed him and rejected him, but is now pursuing him and trying to kill him. Now, most of us have experienced the first one. We've been betrayed and rejected. We've had people turn on us and reject us. We've had people betray us. That's, that's unbelievably painful, isn't it? I mean, that stuff gets inside your head, and you, you find yourself thinking about it all the time, and you're distracted about it. Like, that's anxiety creating enough. Now imagine if that same person then started pursuing you to kill you, and you're not allowed to defend yourself. So David has been outdoors now for months or years. He's had very little in the way of comfort. He's separated from his family. His family's been exiled to Moab. That's got to be hard on him. He's been in hiding apart from his best friend, Jonathan. They have no, they've had no interaction for a long time, and what they did had is very little. And his wife has been separated from him. In fact, by now, he probably knows that his wife has been given to another man. I can't imagine what that feels like, that your young wife, who you've been separated from, that now she's been given to a different man to be his wife. On top of that, Samuel has died. So this one probably anchor in David's mind of like, well, we're okay so long as Samuel's alive, and then Samuel dies. Does David already know that McCall has been given to another man? How powerless David must feel. How worthless and like a failure. This whole anointed by God thing ain't working out so good, is it? David's wondering if that's something that you can turn back in at this point, probably. Here he is, all of this emotion. He's finally found a plan to provide for his family, for his men. They're going to protect these shepherds of this wealthy man for an entire season in the hopes of at least being able to celebrate together to give him, bring something good into the lives of his men so that we can at least feast on a feast day. And this idiot Nabal is the last straw. You could totally imagine David going like, you know what? That's it. I'm done. I've had enough. I've had it up to here. This guy isn't God's anointed. There's no protection on him. He's going to feel the fullness of my wrath as David loses it. He has a band of warriors, and many of the former soldiers or soldiers in the room can attest warriors tend to do two things well, take or protect. That's their two things that they do well. They've been trained to do that. Well, you know what? No one wants our protection. Fine. We'll take it then. What risks had David's men been taking in that part of the world for an entire season? 
Maybe many of his men had been injured. Maybe some of them killed protecting Nabal's stuff. And Nabal has no, no patience whatsoever. It reminds me of what my dad said um, during the, the, the whole thing. And I know this is a very complicated situation. I'm not speaking and to simplify it. But the whole idea of, of people not wanting to stand for the national anthem struck my dad in such a way that when he was given the opportunity, baseball fan his whole life, when he was given the opportunity to go for free to a, to a um, uh, the World Series game a couple of years ago, he said, they will never have another penny of my money or a second of my time. It feels like that. This is it. I'm done. I'm finished with this. What risks have they been taking? Nabal's arrogance and rudeness. Okay, you know what? That's it. Unlike Saul, David does not take this to the Lord. David has not prepared himself for this. This is a beautiful picture, a terrifying picture of when Satan flanks us. We've prepared for a battle. We set ourselves up to face that battle. We trust in the Lord with all our heart, and we don't lean on our own understanding. And God has guided us incredibly to face an incredible moment and to have victory in that moment. And so Satan flanks around behind us and hits us with something totally different. This could make David unfit to be king. He's, he's prepared to resist the temptation to take revenge on Saul. But revenge on Nabal? It's not even crossed his mind that this guy would react this way. He isn't ready. He's at a weak point. Welcome to, again to the human race. Right? Even when we're strong, we're set up for failure. That's us. He just seems like us again. David, David comes off his pedestal for us now here, which is a good thing. Our opinion of him goes down as we realize, wow, this guy's... This guy actually is a little bit more like me than I realized. Maybe a little worse sometimes. Now, it is important to ask, is David asking too much of Nabal to provide for his men? Well, I don't think so. We're about to see the kind of food that Nabal has lying around, um, such that his wife is able to take it without him apparently noticing it. Verse 18, then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five seahs of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. Now, if you're like me, you hear that list and you're like, I mean, it sounds like a lot of food. Is that a lot of food? Is it a whole lot, a lot, or just a little bit of a lot? Like where exactly does that fall in there? So I've unpacked that for you. So we start with the 200 loaves of bread, which we can all imagine a loaf-ish, right? Not, probably not in a Miss Baird's bag, but, but generally speaking, we get the concept of a loaf of bread. You can imagine how big that is. However, where we have no, especially as good Baptists, is a skin of wine. Because when we hear skin of wine, right, we picture a skin like this um, that we picked up at the Alamo when we went as a seventh grader, that Davy Crockett skin, uh, his, his, right, that's what we, we all had that. And so we have a we like skin of wine. Well, two skins of wine doesn't sound like it's going to go far with 600 people. So instead you should imagine a skin of wine like they do them in the Middle East. So a Middle Eastern skin of wine is when they remove everything from outside of the skin of an animal, and then they close up the skin, and then they fill it with wine. They do it with cow carcasses. That's a big skin of wine. This is probably a sheep. So a, this is, they fill the entire skin full of wine. That's a wine skin. And so if you picture that and imagine that in your head, then we add to that five prepared sheep, probably about 200 pounds of meat. Five seahs of parched grain is about 14 milk jugs full of parched grain. Um, so each man, this is, I wondered like, is this enough to like provide for the winter? I mean, I didn't have any idea. So I, I, here's what it turns out to be for each man, a third a loaf of bread, a third of a pound of meat, 
a quarter of a milk jug of parched grain, a solid cup or two of wine, a bunch of raisins, and a third of a fig cake. What this is, is a feast day meal. It's exactly what David asked for. It's a feast day. Let us feast with you. What that tells me is, back to what Paul said about what a great opportunity for Nabal to partner with David. Why does no one want to partner with David? What are you thinking? David is essentially saying, can we join you on this feast day? And Nabal says no. So Abigail is going to show up with a nice, solid feast day meal for David and all of his men. So those of you who work on Wednesday nights, where we serve 400 people, those of you who come to Passover, where we serve 400 to 500 people, imagine those kind of quantities of food. We imagine Abigail, again, immediately reminds us of Abraham, someone who provides opulently, who provides well of his finest things. But this was actually the part that made me start realizing something else about Abigail. She reminds me of somebody else. The language here really helped. 1 Samuel 17, 17. Jesse said to David, his son, take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these 10 loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Oh, If you have this filter in mind, start looking for David in Abigail. Start looking for some of David's best traits now as we continue to move forward in Abigail. And I think you're going to be impressed. Verse 19, she said to her young men, go on before me. Behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under the cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her and she met them. Again, understand the context to help us get fully into this whole passage is about getting us out of David's brine, right? The author is now going to give us, as David is stalking down the mountain towards Carmel, tarred toward where Nabal's home is, as David is stalking with steam flowing behind his head, you get a peek inside of David's mind. What is David saying to himself as he is doing this? As he and his men are marching through the night, what's going on? What is David mumbling under his breath? I can't Nabal, what do you, I can't believe. First we got Saul, and we got, and then we got Samuel dies, and, and, and you know what? And, and so anyway, we get inside his head. Surely in vain have I guarded all this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missing of all that belonged to him, and he has returned to me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. David is about to kill every shepherd boy he just protected all season. He's about to kill every man in this household, every servant who is a male, probably every animal that is a male. He's leaving no males alive in this entire household. That's his plan. And that's what's running in his brain. In the midst of this internal processing, David's rage is percolating and it's bubbling and it's boiling, and now it's percolating over. Does this remind you of anybody? Have we seen, it reminds us of Saul for sure. Have we seen any warriors enter the battlefield rushing forward in rage? We saw this guy named Goliath do this. David has become Goliath in this scene. David is is spouting in his head all of these things. He is charging towards his enemy. And the thing that struck me, again, after God had given me this, this 
that the parched grain was like, wait a minute, that sounds familiar. Verse 23, when Abigail saw David, she rushed the giant. And that's not what it says. But it's the same Hebrew word. She rushed and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She did exactly what David did, except not in combat. She rushed towards David. Now again, have in your mind, you have this angry man stalking with 400 men behind him through the wilderness, headed towards this enemy who he's going to kill every male. And Abigail sees this. And what does she do? She charges at David, gets in front of him like a wall for her family. Again, that's what David has been this whole season. She gets in front of him like a wall, and she bows to the ground, and she begins to speak to him. Can you put the courage on that this would have taken for her to do this? Especially if she's lived in an abusive home. Especially if she's used to receiving the anger of men, of a particular man, a man in power. We've referenced before how David draws men, sometimes great men, or men who become great to himself, and Saul always has to conscript them. Here now David has unintentionally drawn a great woman, too. She's described as beautiful, discerning, pleasant, prudent, and wise. Now she shows herself to be a strong leader and filled with courage. She reminds me of another leader who rushed a giant. Like I said, the Hebrew word here, mehar, guess the, it's the Hebrew word for hurried, and we're going to see her do it twice, and David's even going to reference that she hurried to him. Now, like David, she faces the giant. The giant is David with 400 of his men, and she is rushing this giant. What an amazing picture of courage and strength I'm blown away by it. Fathers and mothers, do we want to teach our daughters a godly version of girl power? I think, I think we have it. Do we want to teach them a godly version of feminine strength? No matter what your sex is, this is power. This is courage. I want to show you my favorite recent example that I kept getting sent on in social media and I had to really restrain, I've restrained myself a lot on social media, by the way. I think I deserve a lot of credit for that. <laughs> this, this one started showing up on some of the women who were in my uh, social media people. This one, and then the other one right after it. This, ladies and gentlemen, is not girl power. This is gaslighting. The message is, see, women are just as good as being men as men are. Because, right, if you fight like a girl, you can take on the men. Does anybody see a problem? These are fictional women. All of them are fictional women. Some of them are, don't even exist. There's a cartoon down in the bottom left corner. That's a comic book character. That is not a real woman. Now, go back to the last one. I do have to make a comment. Gina Carano, of course, is the one example that you wouldn't want to mess with. She's actually a mixed martial artist, right? And which is the, which is the exception that proves the, the, the truth of the matter. And that is, of course, in of course, there are some women who could take the average man, whatever. Of course, that is true. This is a generality. But why are we teaching girls? True strength is to do what men do as well as men do it. Why is that strength? That's not strength. It's, it's, it's not an advantage. That's not feminine power. That's masculine power. Why are you trying to compete with masculine power? That seems silly to me. There's nothing wrong with women. Again, like I said, I wouldn't want to meet Gina Carano on a, on a mat, <laughs> not for anything, right? I, 
She's the real deal. But, but, but beyond that, it was amazing to me how this is what's being pushed to our girls as girl power. And we need to be pushing them Abigail, Mary, Ruth, Deborah. It's not that they're not warlike. It's not that they don't face giants. They do face giants. This is, this is if anything, this scene is scarier than Goliath, in my opinion. Meeting these men, if you ask me, like, which would you rather do? Stand up to David and 400 cutthroats in the middle of the night when they're enraged or go toe-to-toe with Goliath? I think I'll take Goliath. This is, this is, this is a, a no-win situation. She believes what she's doing is right, and she risks her own life by standing ahead of hundreds of savage and angry men. This is a woman who is quick to take leadership and not the, look, I am a leader kind of leadership. The actual responsibility version She leads, she shepherds, she instructs her servants, she protects her household, she handles the logistics, and now we're about to watch her handle a man with her words. In fact, she's about to call a man with 400 soldiers behind him to repentance in front of all of them, and she's going to name his sin. It it is a potent picture of faithful strength. There's nothing wrong with Someone be a woman being able to fight or defend herself. That's not the point that I'm making. The point that I'm making is there is a type of feminine power, like we talked about last week. There's a masculine power. We, we as men, are too powerful to be entrusted with our own power. We have to submit our power to someone else. Our power must be submitted to God. We are too dangerous. Masculine power is too dangerous to be wielded by clumsy oafs like us. Ladies, feminine power is too powerful. It is too potent to be wielded by you. It has to be submitted to the Lord. And when it is, you see this incredible power happen right here. She fell at his feet. Again, I'm going to comment a couple of times on this. You go like, wow, that's, isn't that kind of weak and pathetic that she falls on her feet? You know what, you know what I think? My guess is Abigail doesn't give a rip about our opinion. Like if we were like, hey, don't you, hey, come on, where's your woman power? You're dealing on your, Abigail would be like, no, I don't care about what you say. I don't answer to you. I don't report to you. I've got somebody else in mind right now. She fell at his feet and said, on me alone, O Lord, be the guilt. My Lord, on me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. She takes responsibility right off the bat, which is not hers to take. She's going to take the responsibility, and then she's going to acknowledge, now, I didn't know. I didn't know what was going on. But notice, she's going to use some of that same language. Remember, David's been complaining. Why is Saul paying any attention to me? I'm beneath his notice. She goes, hey, this Nabal character, David, he's beneath your notice. You should not be even considering him. Why are you making decisions based on a fool? You're making decisions based on him. She's now going to give a master class in godly identity. And she's going to teach us what it is to live out who God says we are. She takes the blame. She reminds David. This is what she's going to remind us. She's going to keep using this term, my Lord. But she's going to intersperse it with the Lord. And I think it's very intentional. She's pointing, you may be my Lord, but you have a Lord. We all have the Lord. And she's going to draw his attention back to the Lord. Don't save yourself. Let the Lord do this. We, show, we want to show this, this version of feminine power. So this is really incredible. 
Um, she's going to call David to repentance in front of all these men. Here we go. Here's our master class. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand. Now then, let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. This is her calling him to who he is. Hey, David, you know what you're famous for? You're famous for fighting the battles of the Lord. I wonder what battle you were about to fight, David. Was that the Lord's battle or was it just my Lord's battle? It's, it's poetry. The way she is able to guide him, to shepherd him, she is, I, I can't, she's like a priest. She's like a pastor priest here to him. Of course, some part of me wonders if she's over-communicating deference and submission because she knows this is an out-of-control man and I am a woman. Maybe that's the case. Maybe it's because of her, her past, whatever, her own personal fears. I don't discount it. She is used to talking to a fool, a narcissistic pig. Is she at least starting her conversation with David the way she might with Nabal, stroking his ego? Possibly. But it's amazing how quickly she calls out his sin. Now what I love is she tells him, isn't it amazing that God has protected you from committing this sin, David? As he is on his way to commit this sin, she stops him and says, isn't it amazing that God has made you the kind of man who isn't about to go commit blood guilt? Who isn't about to go rescue himself? It's a really impressive thing about you, David that the Lord has called you and made you something different from how you were about to behave. Maybe she recognizes his anger. David is actually at the root, a rational man after God's own heart. She's hoping for this. She's praying for this, I know. Here is a masterful phrase. She creates rapport with David here. Guys, it's, this, I can't even, I mean, I'm just stunned. I wish I could hire her right now. Like she's like, listen to verse 29. If men rise up to pursue you and seek your life, one, if, this is what's been going on for David's last decade, maybe decade, years of his life. King Saul is pursuing him to take his life, and she knows this. Hey, if that were to happen, the life of my Lord will be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. That sounds like shepherding language to me. Is it possible she's heard the psalm? Surely she's heard that David refers to himself as the shepherd, that David sings and talks about the shepherd. David, you have a shepherd. He has bound you up. You're part of his flock. He has gathered you into his fold. Isn't that the case? If men rise up to pursue you and seek your life, which has been happening for a while, the life of my Lord will be saved, bound up in the care of the Lord. Someone is shepherding you, David. It's the Lord. Now, this last phrase, I mean, if, it, if this didn't earn a smile from David... Her face is on the ground. I don't know if she can see him. But as he, she now tells his story, as you are pursued, you have a shepherd. And the lives of your enemies he shall, I don't know, let's see if I can come up with a good analogy. Hmm, what analogy might you understand, David? May he sling them out like from the hollow of a sling. She's reminding him of the great thing that God has done when he tilled Goliath. 
I, I imagine David, no matter how angry he is, and no matter how smitten he is in this moment, that the fact that she uses this line, he has to turn to look at Abishai on both, on, on, on like, okay, you got me. That was, that was just good. That was, surely he earned a, she earned a smile even from the angry David. He is fleeing from Saul. He has a shepherd. He's killed a giant with a sling. This would be shocking, even more shocking, if it is true that Nabal doesn't know anything about David because apparently his wife knows everything about David. Or God speaks through her or both. 30, when the Lord has done to my Lord. Listen to this, watch how she wraps this up. When the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation for himself. She calls out his sin again, second time in just four verses. She calls out his sin. Isn't it, going, isn't it great, David, that when you become the prince of Israel, when you become the king of Israel, that you won't have to look back on in guilt the fact that you slaughtered all the men of a family? Isn't, aren't you so glad that that's going to be the case, David? And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. She calls him to repentance, blood guilt, and working salvation for himself. What will David do in front of his men? Honestly, ladies, you know, men don't always handle these moments well. Being called out for sin, especially in front of other men. But here she is in her strength. She has stepped into utter faith in God to save her. She's doing exactly what she's saying David should do. She is trusting in the Lord to save her in this Imagine all the times she might have tried to confront Nabal and how badly that probably went. Imagine the pause here. She finishes her little speech. Pause. Here she is, face on the ground. 401 extremely angry and very hungry men. Are you ready for your opinion of David to go back up again? David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord. The God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. Imagine the relief flooding over her at this moment. The tears probably in her eyes as she realizes God has worked this miracle through her. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives who has restrained me from hurting you. Now he's talking in past tense too. Unless you had hurried and come to meet me. There it is. Unless you had rushed me. Truly by morning there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him, and he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice. That's a powerful word. I have obeyed your voice and granted your position. Blessed be God. He gives God the credit for this, and he gives this honor to Abigail for stepping in. He accepts her gifts, and he repents of his sin by name. He repents of the sins exactly she calls him out to. He acknowledges the sin he was about to commit. He was prepared to commit. Verse 36. Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a... So she goes home. Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk, fool. He's a fool like Belshazzar, the one who was throwing a giant party in Babylon while the Persians were closing in on him. This is a man who literally is getting drunk as doom approaches him. He has no idea. What a fool. So she tells him nothing until the morning light. Apparently the shearing of the sheep had gone well 
In the morning when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. Now, no one knows medically what happened here, right? No one knows exactly. There's debate, even of why. What's he reacting to? Was he horrified that he had nearly destroyed his entire family? That he came this close to being not just drunk, but dead drunk? Like, is, is that what gets him? Is like, the, the, the weight of that hits him? Possibly. Some commentaries think so, commentators think so, but most don't. And I tend to agree. That, I mean, I hope that's the case. I hope Nabal had this magic moment of repentance here in the last second of his life before, before he was struck dead. It seems more likely that he was enraged that his wife had betrayed him like this. Enraged at the cost of what she had spent of his without his permission. Enraged at the fact that she had deferred to David. That seems more likely. Don't know. Maybe all of those things put together. Fear of when David was going to come back when he finds out that this was the case. Don't know. But what happens is in that moment, his heart dies in him. He has a stroke. He has a heart attack. Something. He goes into a coma. Apparently he becomes like stone. Verse 38. And about 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. Verse 39, when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord, who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal, and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. You may think it's uncool for David to celebrate the death even of his enemy. Maybe so. I mean, he asks for that often enough. He should celebrate it when it happens. But notice David is also rejoicing in this, that God protected David. Who is protected in this chapter is David. David is protected once again from blood guilt and from making himself an unjust king. Now, listen, God, this is the purpose here. God has the authority and insight and perspective to take human life whenever he sees fit. God never gives up that authority. Sometimes people get mad about that. Wow, David's not supposed to kill this guy, but then God does? Exactly. God has the, he can judge Nabal's heart and he knows whether Nabal's heart is worthy of death. David cannot you got to remember that when God started that instruction, you only, kill, you only shed man's blood when man sheds man's blood. When God gives the instructions, you kill humans according to my, my laws and my rules and never any other time. It's right, out, right after God has wiped out most of the human race. God never reserves, never, God always reserves the right to take human life whenever he sees fit. That's how that works. But we don't have that right. God has the authority and insight to judge what we can't. David has now experienced once again the joy of not fighting for his own battles instead of reaping the reward for doing the right thing and allowing God to vindicate him. If you've ever gotten to experience, there are few joys like it. When you want to fight and you're tempted to fight and you don't fight because God isn't telling you to fight and then God vindicates you, that is amazing joy. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. I bet. He doesn't wait long either. At some point, we're going to see this language again, David sending for a woman, and it won't be so innocent. But in this case, as we see, Abigail is eager to join David. When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to you to take you with him as his wife. She rose and bowed with her face to the ground, the second time she's done that, and said, Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey, and her five young women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. In this passage, once again, her words are always poetry. It's, it's amazing. Abigail makes it clear there is no limit. Listen, there is no limit to her willingness to serve her husband except God's limits. Husbands, 
What is our limit to sacrificing for our wives? Is it a limit we have, we set these limits based on our own preferences, our own desires, maybe our own ego, our own pride? Or is God the only limiter of our sacrifice? Wives, what is the limiter for your service? Are you afraid of how it will look to other people? That somehow serving him is beneath your dignity? Or not according to your timetable? Look how she humbles herself to serve her new husband. Is she afraid to look too devoted? Is she afraid to look too submissive? Is she afraid of looking demeaned? This powerful woman bows all the way to the ground, refers to herself as a handmaiden, and calls her husband her Lord. Is this demeaning? As I said earlier, I doubt if Abigail, Abigail cares what you think or what I think about her. She has bigger fish to fry than us. By the way, speaking of Nabal, twice Abigail is noted as immediately accessing donkeys. I don't know if that's commentary on Saul yet again. That turns out everyone in Israel can find all their donkeys that they need except Saul. I don't know. I'm just commenting on it. Verse 43, things get weird here. David took Ahinoam of Jezreel and both of them became his wives. Saul had given Michal, his daughter, David's wife, to Pati, the Palti, the son of Laish, who was of Galim. I don't know why God, I'm not chickening out on this. We're out of time. We'll come back to it later at some other time. There's plenty of time to do that. I don't know why God does not condemn more openly. David's taking of two, eventually eight wives. We will see that this issue is going to be a huge problem for Solomon, his son. Apparently God is at least willing to tolerate it, maybe just from David's ignorance. Maybe David didn't know the law. Maybe David didn't understand it well enough. I don't know why David would be ignorant of God's design for marriage, but perhaps he was. This is after the judges, after all. In particular, David is going directly against God's instruction for kings of Israel. Deuteronomy 17, 17, saying, He, the king, shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Now shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. I don't know how many many is, somewhere more than one to me. Sounds like many. However, do not take God's patience here as approval. This is important. Don't take God's patience here as approval. If there's something reported in the Bible doesn't mean God approves of it. Even if it's someone he loves and favors. These are often descriptions, not prescriptions. I'll come back and talk more about it later. But I want us to leave as we move into this time of, of invitation and hopefully introspection. We get three examples in this passage. Abigail who's willing to risk everything to follow what God calls her to do. She saves her family. She confronts David. It's, it's a pretty amazing picture. Maybe that's where we are, and we need that. We need people like that in our lives. We need to be people like that. That we're willing to speak the truth in love. However, I will warn you, if your natural tendency, if it's an instinct to go like, that sounds exactly like me. I'm nailing this. I'm hitting it out of the park every time. I only confront when it's called for, and I'm listening to the Lord and serving and sacrificing exactly as I should. Yeah, Nabal probably thought that too. So it's probably something to very seriously, when we think we've got it, maybe we need to reconsider. It's always good if we do, and if you are, I hope you're serving and leading in our church. But for the rest of us, I think we need to focus in on Nabal, who does not repent even when confronted, who can't even be confronted. Or David, who lives in such a state of readiness to repent that even in his anger, he's able to hear the call and repent and confess the very sins he's called to. So with that in our heart, considering these people who God's thrown out of these examples, I'm going to ask you to stand. 
And prayerfully, I, I, my prayer for you is that you are asking those questions. Where am I in this? Where is the Nabal in me? Where is the Abigail in me and how do I encourage that? Where is the David in me who's willing to repent? Even at my worst moment, I'm still willing to repent. That would be amazing. As we have this time of invitation and you're thinking about those things and praying and listening to the Spirit, if you want to come up here and pray with somebody, you can or in the corner. Um, if you've been through our welcome home process and you're ready to come and join our dysfunctional family, now's the time to do that. If you've been through that and you're ready to come up and do that. Um, for the For the rest of us, I hope that as you sing or pray or think, ponder, listen, consider these words now that we're standing in honor of God's word from 1 John chapter 1. This is the message we've heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. The very words of God.